0: An Anglican priest named John Mason Neal was a brilliant man who learned to speak 20 languages. And the reason he did that was because he had this zeal in his heart to share Jesus with as many people as possible, living in the 19th century. And so he had this calling on his life and on his heart to share Jesus. He had this evangelistic zeal, but yet this was a time, a period in history, a part of the world where it wasn't a very personal faith. Jesus was kind of forgotten to some extent, and so he wasn't very popular. And instead of being stationed In London, which is where he was supposed to be going as an Anglican priest, to have a church in London where he was going to send out people all over the world in all of these different languages that he had learned. Instead of that happening, he was basically exiled to some islands off of Africa. And he was there and he was broken. He was a broken man. His health began to fail. But He continued to praise God in his life. He started an orphanage. He started a home for prostitutes. And he studied the Word of God day and night in his brokenness. And as he was studying, as he was searching the Scriptures, searching ancient texts, he came across an old songbook. And in that songbook, he found a hymn that had been in obscurity since the ninth century, probably written by a monk. O come, O come, Emmanuel, from the depths of hell thy people save and rescue them from the grave. Drive away the shades of night and pierce the clouds and bring us light. It was likely written by... An ancient monk, but it was this broken, unappreciated Anglican priest, unjustly treated, and he recovered these lyrics only because he had been broken in this way. And he had lived out his faith, a broken hallelujah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Zechariah, we read earlier, he's from the priestly bloodline, dated back about 1,500 years. His family, he goes all the way back to Moses and Aaron. He was a, a priest, probably the high priest, the spiritual leader of the people. Periodically, he'd have the honor of offering the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So he would go into the temple, into the innermost place called the Holy of Holies, and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And it was his turn. He would carefully offer this sacrifice. The Holy of Holies was thought to be the very presence of God. And so here he is, a respected man. Scripture says he was righteous, and he offers his sacrifice Right outside the Holy of Holies is the altar of incense. And so as he's coming out to tell the people what happened before the vision, to tell them how he had sacrificed for them, for their sins, he's met by an angel. We read it earlier. Gabriel tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a child. And we know that child was John the Baptist, who was the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus. Zechariah, in my opinion, gently questions the angel, Gabriel. How will I know? You could say that he asked for a sign. You don't ask for a sign when the sign is standing right in front of you. You have an angel face to face and he's speaking to you from God with a message, by definition, that's your sign. As punishment, Gabriel shut Zechariah's mouth. He's rendered speechless. I mean, he's the priest. The people are depending on him to speak for them. And so the people would all wait outside the temple while Zechariah was offering sacrifice. Verse 10 and 21 show us that, that the whole multitude was waiting. 21 shows us that the people were wondering what in the world is going on in there. Why were they waiting for Zechariah? Because he would offer this sacrifice for the collective sins of the people. And when he would come out, he would announce to the people, it is finished. Forgiveness of sins has been had. You are forgiven. I've done this for you. I sacrificed for you. Go in peace. He would bless the people. They would celebrate as a result. But this time, he can't speak. He's struck dumb. He's humiliated in front of his people. Doesn't this seem just a tad unfair? I mean, put yourself in his place. All he did was ask how this could be. And yet, his mouth is shut. He's embarrassed, making him unable to do his job. I mean, wasn't that a bit much? And you can say that, that's all well because the baby was born and, you know, eventually it all ended well. But it didn't really end that great for them. Even after John the Baptist is born. I mean, tradition tells us that Zechariah was probably martyred. Because, as you may remember, King Herod, when he heard about Jesus, when he heard about this king, he had all of the babies under two years old slaughtered so that he could get to Jesus, so that he could kill that king that was going to threaten his throne, he thought. Tradition tells us that, of course, John the Baptist was a little baby then. He was a well-known baby because of the story behind him, because Zachariah was a priest. He was a popular man. And so when they came looking for John the Baptist, tradition tells us that they hid him away. This is when they sent him to the desert We don't know that for sure, but that's just conjecture, and that Zechariah was martyred, that he was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Jesus refers to a Zechariah in Matthew 23. He says this, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That could be a couple of different Zacharias, but early church tradition tells us that this is this Zachariah. So it didn't really end well for him. What if Zachariah wasn't? Martyred early. Wouldn't his son bring him joy? I mean, wouldn't this little baby bring him joy? Well, John the Baptist didn't grow up and go to college and find a nice girl and get married and provide grandchildren for Zachariah. John the Baptist was a crazy man. He was out in the desert, says he ate locusts and honey hardly something for a father to be proud about. He wore crazy clothes. He belonged to a strange sect. So, certainly, it didn't really go well for Zechariah, even after his mouth was open. I mean, isn't this unfair? Zechariah had done good things. He'd work hard, Luke even tells us in verse 6 that he was righteous, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And Zechariah's question was so gentle How can I know this? I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. I'm sure that you can tell just by looking at me, but I am very, very athletic. <laughs> just kidding. At least in high school, I was. And I remember when I was in high school, I played basketball. And I was also, obviously, I was a pianist, so I was kind of doing both. And there was a competition at my school, and it was to be able to go to the Fine Arts Festival and represent my school. They only sent two pianists. And so I auditioned for this. There was three of us. And sure enough, all three of us played the exact same piece. So the other two, I heard them. I was sitting in the room. They played it with music. They struggled through. It wasn't that good, quite honestly. I hope you're not sitting here if you were one of those pianists. (laughs) And then I played, right? And I didn't use music. I played it as flawlessly as I could. I mean, in all honesty, it was way better. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration. And so, sure enough, the other two one of them was an administrator's child, and the other one was the board president's child. So, which two do you think were selected to go to the Fine Arts Festival, and who do you think was left out? I was left out. This was a very big honor. This is something that I wanted for college. It was something that I thought that I needed, and I was treated unfairly, and my parents very rarely would they step in in situations like that, but they did some exploring, and the principal, I remember he pulled me out of class, and this principal was also my basketball coach, a man I greatly admire, still admire him. And I remember he pulled me out, and he was kind of irritated. He said, you know, Chuck, it's it's not going to work out for the Fine Arts Festival, but we have a game coming up this week. And honestly, it's kind of irritating that you're out every Monday for your piano lesson. So you really need to choose between piano and basketball. So he was insensitive. He gave me terrible advice. And so this is a double whammy. I've been treated unfairly, unjustly. I have someone in my life who I really respect, who I love, who I look up to, being insensitive, giving bad advice, not understanding the situation. You could say that I was broken. I mean, isn't that unfair? Why does it have to be that way? Why do people have to be the way they are? I mean, why do we hurt each other? purposely, intentionally many times, wound each other, hurt each other, make terrible decisions, unwise decisions. Why are people so mean with their words and so cruel and so unfair? Didn't my hard work mean anything? I imagine Zechariah probably felt the same way at some level. And so a baby is born in Zachariah still can't speak. Verse 62, they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And that brings us to one of the earliest Christmas songs ever composed. Zechariah's song, Blessing God. How? How would he bless God? Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. The very first words out of his mouth can be translated, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah means literally praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. First words. Praise the Lord. In the middle of brokenness, the first words on his lips are praise the Lord or hallelujah. This idea of hallelujah is one of the most ancient words of worship. Because when Zachariah's mouth was closed, he was shamed for something that seemed so minor. But you see, that was God. God had done that. Every time we have something happen in our lives, something small, like when I was unjustly outed when it came to my piano playing, when I was, you know, given terrible advice by my basketball coach, everything in our life is sent to us through God's providence and his hand. He would use that for Zechariah's good. God even uses sin, sinlessly, in some ways, to bring about his purpose. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. A broken hallelujah. As I said, things weren't going to get magically better. I mean, the worst stuff was honestly ahead of Zechariah, but in the midst of it all, Zechariah sang this broken hallelujah. What about you? What areas of your life are broken? And are they merely broken, or are they becoming a broken hallelujah? Listen closely. I can't tell you how many situations happened this past week in my own life, but also in your lives, where it felt like life was unfair, where it felt like you're being mistreated, tempted with the same old sin, whatever it may be. And in every single case, in every single instance, that brokenness, the remedy for that brokenness was three words. Nothing but Jesus. I don't care what the situation is. It could be the smallest, most petty matter. It could be death. But whatever it is, that brokenness that we have in our lives remains a brokenness. It doesn't become a broken hallelujah until Jesus is applied to that situation. You have a family member whom you've forgiven again and again, but yet again they abuse your niceness. You're broken. You're saddened. Are you going to stay merely broken, or are you going to turn that brokenness into a nothing but Jesus broken hallelujah? Jesus said not to forgive once or twice, but 70 times 7, there's your application right there. It's hard, I mean, especially when life seems so unfair. What is your brokenness? What is your brokenness? A simple ancient word of worship that's transcended time and language. At first glance, hallelujah seems to be an exuberant word of praise, and it is. But you could say that every time that word is uttered on this earth, it's a broken hallelujah. The root, the foundation of Zechariah's song is praise. It's right there praise the Lord. Two songs of Christmas written hundreds of years between each other. The first one is written in 1741. The composer's in his 50s. You could say he's towards the end of his career. He's locked in his room for days and is writing a major work on the life of Christ, One writer said he was swimming in debt. He was certain to land in debtor's prison, but he grew so absorbed in the work that he rarely left his room, hardly stopping to eat. In six days, part one was completed. In nine days, he had completed part two. In another six, part three, the orchestration was completed in another two days. In all, get this, 264 pages of manuscript were filled in a remarkably short time of 24 days. One of the maids who tended to his living quarters said she would leave food outside his door. He would barely eat. He would leave trays of food and she could hear noises coming from inside, wondering what's going on in there. George Frederick Handel Later, when he was asked about his experience of writing the Messiah, he quoted the Apostle Paul and said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. One of his closest friends who visited him while he was composing the Messiah said that he found him on the floor sobbing as he's writing these notes. The most famous part of the Messiah is the chorus, namely what? The hallelujah chorus. The lyrics are incredibly complex. For those of us who don't really like these modern choruses that are really repetitive, you know, this will be something that is refreshing to you. It goes something like this, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. King of kings, Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. hallelujah. That's the whole thing. A broken Hallelujah. It's easier than playing it on the piano. The year is 1984. Another songwriter. Imagine the scene with me, a songwriter in his 50s. He's also at the end of his career. He had some bright spots, but he still hasn't truly left a legacy. He hasn't really found that hit song, that breakout hit. He's in his hotel room with pages and pages of lyrics around him. He has written 80 draft verses for this one song. His producers are eagerly waiting for this. He's really on his last leg. He has to find a hit. He's been striking out. If you've ever been through the creative process, you know how painful it can be. You come face to face with who you are. You're turned inside out. He finishes the album. The record label listens to the album. And they're especially nonplussed by a song on the B-side. They feel the lyrics are so esoteric. They're just, they don't really flow. It's kind of churchy for them. But Bob Dylan comes across this song, and he thinks it has lyrical and spiritual potential, and he sings it at a concert, and it quickly becomes one of his most requested songs. Jeff Buckley brings the song to fame in his only complete album called Grace. It was sung by Bono, by Bon Jovi, Rufus Rainwright, Willie Nelson, Josh Groban. The song makes an appearance on Shrek, The West Wing, Scrubs, and for those of you who are fans, The O.C., it's been covered by over 300 artists, and this song, composed by a fledgling artist in his hotel room, as a last-ditch, desperate attempt, was named as one of the top 500 songs by Rolling Stones. The song's performed on YouTube by Pentatonics. It has 110 million views. The song is played on Israeli military radio every single night at 2 a.m. It's been called the pop hymn of our generation. It goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king. Hallelujah. 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 Leonard Cohen, the composer who died this past year, wrote that this song shows that there are many different kinds of hallelujahs, and they're all equal. There's many broken hallelujahs. The last line of lyrics before the final chorus is this, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. The hallelujah may be cold, It may be broken, but it's still a hallelujah. What is your broken hallelujah? Zachariah's broken hallelujah, his first phrase, praise the Lord. You know, it's only a partial hallelujah, interpretively. It isn't really a full-throttled hallelujah. What are you facing? I mean, in a congregation this size, there's, there's so much brokenness here. What is your broken hallelujah? Talked earlier about composers on hotel room floors and in their living quarters composing and pouring out of themselves, giving of themselves their life work. Talked about Handel in 1741 and Cohen in 1984, two famous guys. But there's another one. There's another composer, my cousin. My cousin, who many, many years ago used to help us with our music here, he's just a smooth guy in his abilities, natural abilities, a couple years younger than me, and he's been working on a work, composing a work for children to do at Christmas, a dramatic musical and this dramatic musical, this labor of love that he's been pouring himself into is actually premiering this month. Little church in Kentucky. Just a nameless, kind of faceless place. Kind of like Bear, Delaware, <laughs> you know, when you think about it. But here he is pouring himself out and he has some, some weird symptoms. His foot's dragging a little bit. He's feeling some weird pains. Goes to the doctor with his wife, hoping it's nothing. He finds out he has a tumor in his brain that's in a place that is impossible to get to. His wife, her father, my uncle, has died very recently. family's taking it very hard. And here he is, With this brokenness. Now, I have no doubt that Scott Brown, some of you may know him, will offer himself as a broken hallelujah. I don't know how guys do it. When you're looking at your four children, knowing this will probably be your last Christmas, unless God works a miracle. What is your broken hallelujah? Because, like I said, Zachariah's praise the Lord isn't a full-throttled hallelujah. It's an aspect of it, of thanksgiving and blessedness. But the word in its purest form, hallelujah, is used over 40 times in the Old Testament. There's five whole psalms dedicated to hallelujah, Psalm 113 to 18. But the word hallelujah in its purest form isn't found once or it's only found once in the New Testament. The first 18 chapters of the book of Revelation are all about what happens before heaven. All of these nasty events, scary events. But when chapter 19 begins, we're essentially back where we started in Genesis at the Garden of Eden restored. Paradise, all things new. Revelation 19 through22 is the bookend to the Bible, and it gives us a picture of this paradise restored. and for the first time in the New Testament, in its purest form, the word "Hallelujah" is what starts it off. Revelation 19:1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, "Hallelujah!" Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The broken hallelujah of Zechariah isn't the final hallelujah. Amen? The final hallelujah is a full throttled, full voice hallelujah, similar to Handel's hallelujah. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. There it is again, this threefold hallelujah of 19. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns our broken hallelujahs, your broken hallelujahs, my broken hallelujahs, are not the final Hallelujah. The broken hallelujah of the single mom struggling to raise her son is not the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah of parents longing for their prodigal child to come home is not the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah of the young woman whose husband was just diagnosed with brain cancer is not the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah that happens when through tears we confess a sin that we've committed yet again. That brokenness, that broken hallelujah, throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, throwing ourselves at the mercy of the cross is not the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah we sing at midnight when the chronic physical pain just won't let up. That broken hallelujah, literally crying out for mercy, that is not the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah of depression, that is not the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah of shattered finances isn't the final hallelujah. The broken hallelujah of addictions is not the final hallelujah. The final hallelujah goes something like this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white corvettes. (laughs) Trying to get your attention. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is tattooed King of kings and Lord of lords. Our broken hallelujahs, yours. What is it? Now, what is it? What is this broken hallelujah in your life? that you're going to turn over to Jesus during this month of December. That's the application. Those are all being stored up. Psalm 56:8. you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Are your tears not in Jesus' book? Are your broken hallelujahs not in his book? The broken hallelujahs, which are all earthly hallelujahs that we have even the ones that are celebrative they're all broken in some way one day those will all be transformed into a final hallelujah